All right, welcome back as we continue on, taking you up until 6 o'clock tonight. It's Jimmy B and TC on 1700 KBGG. And, well, with a heavy heart, we welcome in our next guest here today, BJ Rydell. He's been with us a number of times talking Vikings. And, BJ, uh, certainly tough circumstances. We're going to talk Vikings today, but the untimely passing of Tony Sperano, certainly uh, an impact not just to Vikings fans, but I think NFL fans all over the place. Absolutely. You know, it's um, at any time a coach or player personnel passes away, it's, it's devastating. Um, it comes at an extremely unfortunate time as well, right before training camp. You know, this is kind of a, it was an opportunity for the Vikings to take the next step. And, you know, I haven't spoken directly. I didn't have the opportunity to speak directly with uh, Coach Sperano, but I'm sure he was geared up and ready to uh, get that offensive line to the next level for this upcoming season. So, yeah, it's absolutely devastating, and it's um, you know it's tough timing for the Vikings um, from a business standpoint. And unfortunately, you know uh, they do have to move back into a business mode immediately. Here, uh, there was a press release uh, last night that uh, the Vikings are organizing a coaching meeting and looking forward to uh, making a decision um, on that uh, sooner rather than later. So. Uh, it's a tough situation for the Sperano family. Best wishes to them, and then uh, for the Vikings. You know, it's it's got to be business as usual. Training camp on the on the horizon here. BJ, that's uh, that's tough to make it business as usual. Uh, I yeah, saw one of the report. Yes, it is. Uh, I saw one of the reports, and apparently this report, and maybe you can clear it up, indicated that he went to go see a doctor. Said said he was having some chest issues like three or four days prior to what happened and they checked him out said he was okay and then he passes away was that report correct do you know yeah that's what i have heard as well uh chest pains uh and then uh he was found uh unconscious at his house i believe it was in eden prairie uh and his wife found him uh he was unconscious and unfortunately that was the that was the last of what we've heard about the situation and, um, you know, the passing of Tony Sperano. So, uh, yeah, it's an extremely difficult situation. And, you know, it's one of those things where it, with the chest pains and whatnot, uh, there's, a, there's kind of that question, like, could this have been prevented? And that's still up in the air at this point. But uh, it sounds like this is just a very untimely um, situation where he's, he's simply gone too soon and, you know, uh, the football world has reacted to this in a number of different ways. I, I just read uh, Latavius Murray uh, responding to the situation, the Vikings running back who was with the Oakland Raiders when Tony Sperano was there uh, and said that, you know, he was his head coach for his very first snap in the NFL. Um, we've seen the guys down at the Miami Dolphins organization respond to this, and he's seen the guy that turned that team from a 1-15 organization to an 11-5 team, and it's actually the only NFC East, or excuse me, AFC East team to win the division other than the Patriots since 2003 under Tony Sperano. So he's had a, he had a huge effect across the NFL, primarily with those Miami Dolphins and Oakland Raiders. But um, he was beloved in Minnesota as well. And I, I remember, for me specifically, I have one personal experience with Tony Sperano uh, at training camp last year. Uh, he was running shoots uh, with the Vikings offensive lineman trying to get him into shape. And what really struck me about Sperano is he's not necessarily known as an X to the nose guy, right? but he's known as sort of a guy that is an elevator of talent from kind of a, a, a man-to-man standpoint. So when these guys were running shoots underneath these, you know, the metal beam, he was getting down at eye level with them and screaming in their face. And, you know, 
really trying to motivate him in that sense. And we've seen, you know, dramatic improvement from that Vikings offensive line, specifically Riley Reef and Rashad Hill, um, over the last year or so when Toronto came around. So it's devastating news, not just from, you know, a personal standpoint. Of course, that's the most important thing here. Uh, but you also look at the fact that the Vikings offensive line was moving in the right direction under Sperano, and so now it becomes a, you know, a, a question mark of, well, can this team, can, can this five-man front continue to improve with the loss of their coach? It's uh, what he did with that offensive line a year ago, and they obviously yes. they made changes as they needed to, but you go through it and now just the difficult circumstance with it, an offensive line that still it was better but it wasn't great a year ago. You sure. ha- have to find a new coach here. I mean, a- as a Vikings fan, as somebody that covers a team like you do, how concerned are you with this now, BJ? You know, again, it, it, it's tough to try. <laughs> it's, try- it's tough to kind of go right back into football mode with this, but I think that as a Vikings fan, this is an immediate concern here. You know, entering the Vikings season here, the, the number one concern that everyone is looking at was already the offensive line, right? Mm-hmm. And then you lose you you lose the coach of that unit, uh, and it has to be even greater of a concern. Uh, you've got a couple of nice pieces there to work with. You know, Riley Reef is coming off of a great season um, on that back end, and Pat Elfline has had an extremely impressive rookie season. So you have your center and your left tackle position solidified, but there's question marks at guard. Is it is it going to be Mike Remmers at right guard this year, who spent most of his last season at right tackle? Uh, where are they going to put Rashad Hill this year? Uh, where do some of these new guys fit in as well? You know, the Vikings did not spend, uh, at least from a fan perspective, from what I have seen floating around, they did not spend enough time upgrading that offensive line with the pieces that they had in terms of draft resources and in free agency. Um, so this is a very interesting situation and it's something that, you know, the Vikings are going to have to fix quickly no matter how much they don't want to. Uh, this coaching situation needs to get fixed and it needs to be done quickly in order to get them up to speed and ready to go through training camp and into the regular season. All right. Uh, everybody right now, BJ, is going to be locked in on brand-new multi-million dollar man Kirk Cousins at quarterback. How good do you think he has to be right away? Does does it does just winning solve the problem or does he have to like win by 15 or, or two touchdowns for and, and throw for 300 yards for people to say well he's earning that money <laughs> it's an interesting question and i think that you're going to see a lot of different sides uh here for that so uh, people love that 4,000 yard passing benchmark for some reason um i've always been someone that isn't a big fan of volume stats and tries to tell people to look at the you know, uh, the data as in terms of averages and in terms of win totals, right? Um, so for me personally, he just needs to win football games. If the Vikings go deep into the postseason, uh, potentially all the way back to the NFC Championship or even the Super Bowl, that contract is a success immediately. Uh, and then there's going to be other people who are going to say, all right, well, I want 35 touchdowns, I want 5,000 yards, I want limited number of interceptions, you know, I want Dante Culpepper-era stats now that they have these, you know, receiving duo and Thielen and Diggs, who are considered to be by most Vikings fans the best since Carter and Moss. So uh, it's going to be it's going to be one of those situations where you can't really please them all. Uh, but I think from the rational standpoint here, uh, if, if Cousins comes in and puts up you know four thousand yards, thirty five touchdowns, uh, with you know limited interceptions and turnovers. Uh, I think Vikings fans have to be satisfied if he ends up getting them to a 12-win season in the division championship. 
What about uh, contracts? I, I know this is the time of year leading in if people are going to get extensions. Stefan Diggs seems to be kind of the biggest one talked about right now. What do you have for us there, BJ? You know, Stefan Diggs, uh, it's a very interesting situation because we've seen it kind of develop over the course of this offseason, right? Brandon Cooks just came in and got his extension from the Los Angeles Rams, so it's interesting to see how that may or may not affect uh, Stephon Diggs' situation. So the numbers that have been floated around are anywhere between 12 and $15 million, and from you know everything that I have heard and everything that I have come to understand is that Diggs is willing to play this season out and bet on himself, uh, and that he and his agent have been in talks with the Vikings uh, throughout this offseason. So what we're kind of seeing uh, in terms of news in this situation is, purely speculation at this point as far as I'm concerned. It's been very up and down, uh, but the contract, you know, Diggs wants to be in Minnesota. The Vikings want him to be in Minnesota. It's about finding that right number. Uh, and so for all intents and purposes, it seems like the Vikings are heading in the right direction in terms of getting that deal done. Uh, it just hasn't been finalized to this point, and uh, hopefully the, you know, the goal is to get that done before the regular season starts. Uh, running back-wise, a certain uh, running back who got hurt, couldn't play hardly at all out of Florida State last year. Uh, update his health status, and where do you expect him, and how many carries this coming season? Dalvin Cook has to be you know, a, a primary focus for Vikings fans heading into this season, especially with John Filippo coming over uh, from the Philadelphia Eagles and the way that he has used running backs in the past. If you look back, and what the Eagles did last year with three running backs, uh, Jay Ajayi being the primary guy out there, Corey Clement also being in that role, and having a couple other guys factored in, uh, Dalvin Cook is going to be a primary workhorse for this Vikings offense. So I would, look just, I would look at this in terms of total overall touches as opposed to rushes, simply because I, would, I, I could see him getting a lot of touches as a receiver this year. Um, so anywhere between 225 to 250, I think it's probably a good round number to hit. Um, assuming that he stays healthy. Now, every report that I have seen uh, is that Dalvin Cook is going to be ready to go uh, for the regular season and should be expected to be able to take on a full workload. So he is recovering quickly and in a timely manner. And, you know, it it is best time, excuse me, it's the time of the year where we hear people give the whole best shape of my life uh, quote. So uh, Dalvin Cook probably falls into that category as well. He seems to be recovering rapidly and should be expected to take on a full workload this year. So I would expect big things from Dalvin Cook um, until proven otherwise, I suppose. Last thing from me for you, BJ, and uh, defensively, obviously an elite-level defense, but the NFC Championship game lingers and just how, how badly they were decimated. You bring in Sheldon Richardson. If you had a question, though, for that defense, what, what's the biggest question in your mind? You know, that's interesting. Uh you know, the defensive line seems to be fairly solidified, one of the best front fours in the NFL. Uh, the back end of that defense looks very good with Xavier Rose, Trey Wayne, Harrison Smith, Anderson Dejo. Uh, and in the linebacker situation, Eric Hendricks is officially locked up. Anthony Barr is still under contract despite kind of ongoing negotiations with him as well. Uh, there isn't, I suppose, a major concern. I think the biggest question here is how Mike Zimmer is going to operate that defense this year because you bring in Mike Hughes to play cornerback, and that was kind of uh, back during draft time. That was a very interesting move because you already have two cornerbacks in Rhodes and Waynes under contract. You've got Newman, who, who has been solid uh, despite his kind of growing, excuse me, despite being up there in age a little bit. And then you've also got Mackenzie Alexander, who was very solid on the slot last year. So 
I, I'm interested to see what they do with the cornerback position in terms of more packages uh, involving defensive backs. So you might see four cornerbacks at times, so kind of like a quarters package or a dimes package as opposed to the nickel that they've been running. So instead of kind of looking at that 4-2-5 that they've been doing in the past with two linebackers, four defensive linemen, and then five defensive backs, you know, it'd be interesting to see if they run that even to you know, possibly six defensive backs at different times. So uh, that's probably the, the most the schematic outlook here. It's probably the most interesting thing with the defense. As far as personnel goes, you know, I, I don't know how much better the Vikings defense can get in, ter- in terms of overall completeness and overall you know, depth from ev- at every single position. Um, we'll let you run on this one then. In your estimation, for the Vikings to be in the Super Bowl, does it run through Green Bay, Philadelphia, the L.A. Rams? Are you in on those three teams, along with Minnesota, as the top teams in the NFC? Absolutely. You know, I, I do think it's interesting how many people are kind of uh, jumping on this on the Packers bag, bandwagon, despite the fact that their defense is still kind of a big question mark, and that running game is interesting as well. Um, but they are a division rival, and they are kind of the rival in terms of being a Vikings fan. So, um, you know, the Packers are always going to be the team to run through because you have to play them twice this season, and you actually have to play play them early on in this year. But ultimately, I think this is this comes down to going back to Philadelphia and finding a way to beat them. Uh, you know, you guys already mentioned the NFC Championship game and how decimating that was. That resolve can't turn you know, that you can't have that same type of problem happen again this season. You actually have to play the Eagles during the regular season as well. So um, I would say that in order for the Vikings to get to the Super Bowl, it runs through Philadelphia because they are the Super Bowl champions, and until proven otherwise, uh, that remains the same. BJ, as always, appreciate the time. We'll do it again soon. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thanks so much, guys. BJ Rydell joining us here. You can find him on Twitter at Robert Rydell. As we talk a little bit of Vikings. Jim, we got a, a different Jim coming up next. Jim Delaney from earlier today. Big Ten uh, Football yes. News Conference as the media days continue on. Kirk Ferentz, he'll be at the podium bright and early tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. And not a chance that you're going to be seeing that tomorrow morning, Jimmy B. You'll be w- waiting for the replay, right? Uh, probably, yes. That's that's what I figured. We got Delaney. That's early for me. <laughs> it is, it is. Delaney coming up on the other side, take it up until 6 o'clock. It's Jimmy B and TC. Uh-uh. All right, welcome back. We got uh, the commissioner waiting in the wings, Jimmy B. Jim Delaney earlier today talked a lot of different things. He talked about the East-West divide that we've obviously talked about, the strength of the East Talked about gambling and what they're going to do as it pertains to medical reports. A lot of interesting things from Delaney today. What do you think? I'm with you on that. I I thought a lot of the questions uh, got answered, which is always important when you're in the news media. And I just found it to be kind of uh, eye-opening, to be honest with you. And I'm glad that Delaney was pretty much uh, forthcoming with uh, some of his responses. Here it is, Jim Delaney from Big Ten Football Media Days. It's exciting to be here for the 47th annual kickoff luncheon media day session. Thank you for being here to cover Big Ten football. Let me first note the passing of a few individuals since our last meeting. Mike Slive, SEC Commissioner, CM Newton, Coach and Administrator, and Vic Boob was for, former Duke Coach and Commissioner. Mike was a longtime colleague and friend. CM and Vic were friends and mentors to me for over 40 years. 
I'd also uh, like to welcome Scott Frost to the Big Ten coaching ranks. Heading into 2018, we couldn't be more positive about the current group of coaches leading our teams. These men are talented, experienced, and successful. These leaders inspire while promoting intense collegian competition grounded in the values of fair play. Each year is unique and unscripted. That's the beauty of college football and indeed competitive sports. Who could have possibly predicted the unprecedented success of our teams last year with his coaches, with his coaches on the field, in the stadiums, on TV, and in the classroom? I honestly think it was one of the finest seasons in modern football here or elsewhere. And let me explain my thinking, citing some data. At a time when college football stadium attendance is generally in decline, the Big Ten Conference was the only A5 conference to increase its in-stadium attendance. In non-conference play, while playing the fewest FCS teams, the most A5 opponents, the Big Ten won 77% of its games against FBS opponents, the highest success rate in A5 or the FBS. The conference also recorded a 7-1 bowl record against A5 opponents, including victories in the Orange, Cotton, and Fiesta Bowls, all in the same season, a first in college football history. In the first year of our new TV agreements, working with three media partners, Fox, ESPN, and BTN, we recorded the following performances. For the top six most viewed regular season games on ABC involved Big Ten teams. Eight of the top 12 most viewed games on Fox involved a Big Ten team. Five of the top six most game, viewed games on FS1 involved the Big Ten team. And five of the top 10 games on FS1 involved the Big Ten team. And five of the top 10, nine of the top 20 most viewed games across all networks involved a Big Ten team. Our competitiveness, our rigorous scheduling approach, our collaborative network partners and their skillful production and announced teams all contributed to these remarkable results. And in 2017, the final CFP rankings spoke to the success of Big Ten football. The Big Ten had five teams in the top 21. Ohio State 5, Wisconsin 6, Penn State 9, Michigan State 16, Northwestern 21. After a 7-1 bowl season, these rankings were confirmed. Scott Docterman with The Athletic. Jim, this is the fifth year of geographic divisions and eighth year of divisional play overall. The teams in the current East Division have 14 top 10 finishes, where in the West they have four. Mm -hmm. Is there a concern the league could be uneven competitively? And if so, is there anything that could be done to rectify that? You know, Scott... Um, We've had uh, two experiences with divisions. Um, the first one was based on um, competitive balance over the last 20 years. And uh, to be honest with you, it wasn't uh, received that well. I think the identification um, by fans, uh, their desire to play geographic rivals, and to really fully sort of um, reinforce uh, the historical rivalries, uh, at the end of the day was more important than trying to achieve in any particular time frame. Um, competitive equality 
Um, I don't, I'm not sure uh, that, that we have a long enough window um, to really arrive at that conclusion. Um, I think most of us, ex well, all conferences, except for the Big Ten, have really stayed with their geographic um, groupings, and I think there's probably a reason for that. I think it probably has to do with the fan base's natural inclination to see, uh, even though conferences are larger, uh, more geographic uh, rivalry. So it, it, I think the data is self-evident for now, but I, I think that you're going to see greater and greater competitiveness. Uh, I know in the SEC, you saw a decade of Eastern dominance and probably uh, the last 15 years or so, the West has been more dominant. So I, I think you're going to see more and more competition uh, uh, between the two conference, two divisions, which are similar. Um, but I, I think your facts are, are, you, are the facts for now. And I don't expect that uh, there'll be any change. Commissioner, we'll take our next question here on our right toward the middle. Uh, Bill Bender, Sporting News. Um, you mentioned the conference's success in the Bulls season, but how much concern is there that the Big Ten champion hasn't reached the college football playoff since the nine-game schedule went into effect? You know, the um, committee's job is a, is a difficult one. Um, we do have four years of data, and, and it is true um, that there have been champions that have been excluded. We knew that there would be champions excluded. That's a four-team um, it's a four-team playoff with ten champions out there, five in the A5. Um, I, I think that um, there is a lot of reasons why you decide to do what you do in scheduling. Uh, I think it's related to your fan base. I think it's related to building strength of schedule. I think it's uh, related to getting uh, your teams in the best possible shape for postseason. Uh, and I think what I... Um, cited earlier is that we're, we're pretty successful uh, in a lot of those categories. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt that playing nine games in the kind of rigorous schedule that we play makes uh, uh, achieving an undefeated season more difficult. Um, and it is true that the committee has not selected a team with two losses uh, from, from any conference. So we'll continue to watch it. We have tremendous respect for the committee. Their job is to select the four best teams and, uh, and, and, what, and we think that uh, they operate in good faith. We continue to build a conference and be as good as we can be, and we think that includes playing each other as much as we can, playing the best teams in the country in the non-conference as well as in the postseason, and uh, continuing to make the case uh, that, that our teams are among the four best uh, in the country. But last year is a pretty good example. You can have a very, very successful year. Uh, even in a year where you're not selected to play in the unfortunate playoff. We'll take our next question, Commissioner, back on the left side of the room toward the middle. Bill Rabinowitz from the Columbus Dispatch. Could you address the uh, landscape now with legalized sports ba uh, gambling coming? Uh, Gene Smith talked about the possibility of a league-wide injury report. Could you address that and any other actions you may take? Yeah. Um, we've had a lot of discussion uh, about the changes uh, in, in gambling that will obviously occur in, in coming years. A um, couple things. The first thing I would say is I, I think we've got, you know, great students playing football. Trust them. Um, they're young. Uh, we need to continue to educate them about the challenges uh, associated with uh, gambling and uh, the importance of the integrity of the game. But I don't think that they are more vulnerable today 
than they were before the uh, Sullivan case. That's the first thing I'd say. Second thing is I think we've got to double down on the educational element. I think we've done that over the years, and, and we continue to do that. I, I think that we would prefer a federal framework that either omits um, college sports from gambling at the state level, and if that's not possible, that there be some standardization of a framework so that um, college sports, uh, high school sports, Olympic sports, that, that those categories of sports receive some additional protection. On the issue of um, player availability, I, I don't call it an injury report as much as I think about it as player availability. Whether that comes out of an injury or whether it comes out of eligibility or comes out of some um, transgression of one kind or another, uh, I think we need to do that. Uh, I think we need to do that nationally. And I think we, the reason we need to do that is probably, with the exception of the home field, the availability of personnel is critical um, to people who are interested in gambling uh, legally or illegally. And therefore, uh, when, when players are unavailable, we should know that. If they're probable or likely, I don't have the um, model code, but I do think it's something that we should do and, and uh, probably should have done it before, uh, but certainly should do it now. Take our next question. Your commissioner right down in front of us. Commissioner Ryan Schuling, Great Lakes Divide. A question kind of following up on that last one with the recommendation of the panel, the committee, kind of Lisa Rice and others, rules changes that might be coming from the NCA and how it might affect the Big Ten positively and negatively impacting going forward. What are some of the bullet points you look forward to or are focused on? On, on the Rice Commission? Correct. Yep. Um, you know, obviously, um, we had a um, very serious... Uh, scandal in college basketball. Um, the NCA asked uh, Secretary Rice to head up a, a commission. She's given her recommendations. She had a good group of individuals to work with uh, from different parts of the collegiate environment. Um, in, in general, you know, we support those recommendations. They have to be taken from the conceptual to the actual. And I think there were eight working groups. We had people on four of them. Uh, but I expect that um, in whole or part, um, her recommendations will become part of NCAA bylaws. Um, and, and I think most of them are, are very constructive. Um, but I think the um, proof will be in the pudding. Uh, we didn't get ourselves here because of a failure of a regulatory system. We have a culture that I think we've uh, uh, been unable to wrap our arms around and, and ensure uh, integrity in the recruitment process, call it pr player procurement, recruitment, call it what you will. There's a lot of suspicion there. Um, and I'm not suggesting that every player, every coach who engages in the recruiting process is doing something wrong, but these are not isolated incidences. And I think it's uh, fair to say that a lot of people have had their suspicions over quite a long time. We didn't get here overnight. We're not going to get out of here overnight. And, uh, and I think uh, Secretary Rice's recommendations are a first step. And most of them are what I would describe as midterm to longer term. There's nothing in the short term that's going to flip the switch here. From a personal perspective, I really think, I really believe quite a bit that the NCA should be doing spot checking, should be interfacing with great prospects earlier. 
very pleased to hear that the NBA and the Players Association are seriously thinking about eliminating the prohibition against young people turning professional. That prohibition deprives players of choice. These players should have choice. And there's nothing um, that would deny them, or we have no interest in denying them the opportunity to go to college or the opportunity to professionalize themselves. We have to figure, it, figure that out. But uh, we'd love to have them. If they want to go to college and want to play college basketball, terrific. If they're good enough and have a desire to professionalize themselves, that ought to happen. And in particular, I think they ought to have the right kind of representation so they can make an informed decision. But if we all could get involved with them earlier to not only develop their athletic skills, but also to help them understand the uh, choices they'll have, the better off we'll all be. Next question is on our left, all the way in the back. Uh, Commissioner Jason Jorgensen from KRVN Radio. 30 years you've been commissioner of this league. Does, does this give you a chance to look back and you know, personally maybe see where things have been and you know, where things are headed? <laughs> Let's just put it this way. In 30 years, you see a lot. Um, it's been a great uh, opportunity for me to work with coaches, presidents, athletic directors, media friends, media partners. Um, and in, in some ways, um, the more things change, the more they set, stay the same. Um, we, we have more challenges today in America, uh, partially because of the changes in the communication system. Um, and we try to uh, use those changes uh, to benefit the universities, students, and I know that uh, it's had uh, those changes had a tremendous effect on how you cover uh, cover sports. Um, it has a tremendous effect on young people and the uh, responsibilities and accountabilities so that uh, plays out with them. Um, it's an amazing place, uh, the Big Ten. Um, we've always been, you know, interested and concerned about competing on the national level. We've always been interested and concerned about providing a, an educational opportunity that was real, that was qualitative. Um, uh, we can't guarantee the outcome, but we try to create the circumstances where that can occur. We've had our ups and our downs competitively over a long period of time. We've tried to accept when we haven't been competitive, uh, try to accept that in a graceful way, not to be too much whining or complaining. Uh, committees have their jobs to do. We try to support them. I personally think we're at a place and should be at a place where you try to avoid uh, being the critic all the time. Um, a lot of times in America when you don't get what you want, you become the critic of the institution that you created in order to help you achieve success. And when it doesn't give you what you want, it's pretty easy sometimes to start firing, but more often than not it ends up being firing in a circular a firing squad. You end up shooting yourself and destroying what it is you've tried to create. But I think that there's an awful lot good about the intercollegiate enterprise. Uh, there's a lot that needed to change, some of which are, are changing. Um, but I think you need the energy to keep your eye on the future, which would be providing better opportunities, higher quality opportunities, and to maintain what is uniquely American about college sports. I think the Big Ten exemplifies that with equity for men and women, 10,000 playing opportunities, and graduation rates that meet or exceed the student body. So um, we're human, 
Uh, sometimes we fall short, but we're always aspiring. Thank Next you for the opportunity to comment on 30 years. Next question, Commissioner, will be here on our right, just on the aisle. Nick Petrovich, Toledo Blade. Uh, Jim, one of those long-term ideas that has gained some traction is the Olympic model by which players are allowed to profit off of things like advertisements and still maintain their amateurism. Is that something long-term you think could be realistically implemented? I think Condi Rice um, probably characterized that in the right way. We have been involved in litigation over pay-for-play, name, image, and likeness for a decade. Uh, we're quite honestly probably in the seventh inning um, of that. We have a big case in uh, California that will go to trial in September. Win or lose, I think whichever party doesn't prevail will appeal it. I think it'll probably go to the Supreme Court and that will bring some resolution to the issue of pay for play. Once that is um, resolved well, one way or the other, uh, I think that how the student participates in amateur sports, whether they're Olympic sports, collegiate sports, Little League sports, there'll be plenty of time to try to resolve that. But I think it's premature until the fundamental issue of can we make our own rules, one, and two, can we maintain intercollegiate athletics as we have known it over the last hundred years, uh, re despite its, its weaknesses, it has plenty of strengths. Uh, there'll be plenty of time to discuss uh, issues like name, image, and likeness. But until the um, Jenkins case is resolved through the courts, I think we're better off just um, maintaining, holding our powder on what might uh, occur in the future in that area. Stay in the exact same spot for our next question. Gino Green from College Sports Overload. Last season was the first season where you guys did Friday Night Football. What was the feedback, if any, you got from schools like, Penn, like Illinois and others, and how can it help this year for schools like Indiana, Minnesota, and Penn State that will be participating right. in those games? Okay, so last, last year was the first year of our new football agreement. And as you know, um, before that, uh, we had played on Thursdays and Fridays um, of Labor Day, and we'd also played on Fridays. Um, of uh, Thanksgiving weekend. So there are probably two additional Friday games. Um, if, if institutions had not wanted to play at home, that was an opportunity for them to check the box. We don't want to have home games. A number of them did. A number of the schools actually said we'd like to have a Friday game. And so that's occurred in, in several instances. And so um, it, it is an opportunity, I think. Uh, it, there are some conflicts with the high schools, but we've been able to really um, announce those games in advance. We've been able to work with the high school associations. And uh, I think of the 93 games that were televised, uh, I think there were two Friday games, uh, which wouldn't have been there in the past. And I think they went off fairly well. Uh, I can't tell you that I know exactly what the date is on those two games, but we're going to continue to communicate. I don't expect many more than those two additional games, but uh, they will be there going forward. Uh, take our next question here. Jada in the back. Be on our right, Commissioner. Thank you, Matt. 
Matt Brown, SB Nation. Uh, Commissioner, it seems like the past couple of years have been financially successful for the conference, especially as the league has entered into new broadcast agreements. I'm wondering how you would uh, describe how these, the maybe increased financial windfall has benefited fans of Big Ten programs. You know, I, I think that how they've affected our institutions is a little bit different. Um, we probably have... Um, maybe, relatively speaking, the most comparable funding from the highest uh, funded to the least funded. Um, but if you believe in college sports, the additional funding allows for the growth and sustaining of equitable opportunities for men and women. It allows um, for uh, the development of venues, academic support, psychological support, travel, and so if you're a fan of a Big Ten institution, uh, typically fans uh, support not only football and basketball, but to a lesser extent, uh, Olympic and other sports. So I think it allows us to recruit nationally. It allows us to have financial aid packages to the maximum allowed uh, by NCAA. It allows us to have the broadest base programs in the country. Uh, we have nearly 10,000 students participating and uh, $250 billion of financial aid. So it, it simply allows for a platform that provides high-quality educational and athletic opportunities uh, that are really unequaled uh, in a, in a, uh, among the major conferences in the country. Without those resources, we'd be unable to have um, a presentation and opportunity set uh, that I just described. Time for about two more questions, and we'll start here in the back on our right. Jack Ebling from the Team 92.1 FM. Uh, Jim, you mentioned uh, not wanting to do anything that would restrict uh, the choice to compete professionally rather than attend college. A number of coaches have said once that decision is made to be a college athlete, there should be at least a two-year commitment. Jay Wright recently said that should be three years do you support that concept, or is that also a violation of freedom of choice? Well, the, the reality is you're asking a person, when you ask Jay or Jim or Tom, that really has no influence over that decision. I think one of the real um, misunderstandings, narratives, if you will, is that anybody... There's nobody who has, um, a lot of people have interest, but there's no one who has any control over the relationship between playing professional, when that happens, how that happens, than the Players Association and the ownership. So from a personal perspective, it seems to me like the NFL uh, model works for the NFL and its players. It works for us. There's no choice there, but I think everybody recognizes that most high school players aren't ready to play in college, um, uh, not, not even thinking seriously about putting a 17 or 18-year-old uh, onto an NFL team. So there's probably a health and safety issue there. Baseball handles it differently. I think baseball's got 6,000 minor league players. That works for us. That works for them. Uh, the NBA has gone back and forth on this issue. But we don't have control over that. We don't really try to have control over that. 
But when they do things in any that are disruptive, and certainly I think the one and done has been uh, to some extent disruptive, uh, it's not good for us, and I'm not sure how good it is for them. So uh, I, I appreciate Jay's point. I would like to have some stability in college, but we have no control over that. We have no leverage over that. We have no control over that, and I'm not really sure that we should. Um, certain of the outcomes you know, are compatible with what we do, and some of them aren't. And I think that's just part of the reality of the world that we live in. Time for one more question. The floor is open right now. If you have a question, please raise your hand. We'll go against the wall over here on our far right, Commissioner. Hello, Austin Berkland, ESPN Radio. With something you can't control like transfer rules, do you see that kid being able to have a choice in transferring without sitting out a year? Um, I think that there's been some evolution in, in the transfer areas. I know that the transfer working groups at the NCAA have been hard at work for a couple years, and I know they've made a recent change where the schools have given up or um, moved beyond having to provide permission in, in certain cases, um, graduate students and otherwise, there's more flexibility there. I think there needs to be some balance there between the individual uh, and their flexibility to make a change and the institution to have some stability inside the system. So um, if we're making a four-year grant and aid a commitment, if we're uh, making um, return to college available, um, if we're doing a lot of the things that we're doing, it seems to me that um, there needs to be some balance between the individual uh, and the institution. And, and it's not easy to arrive at, but I think that the direction that we've gone and the changes that were recently made are, are good ones. And we're back one final time here, Jimmy B and TC, just a couple minutes to wrap up, Jim. And we heard from Jim Delaney this hour, talk with BJ Rydell. We had Wolfgang earlier today. Busy show here. What do you got going? Uh, what do you got cooking tonight, Brinson? Well, it's going to be baseball this evening because there are some really good games, Trent. Um, early, it's the Dodgers at Philadelphia, so that has piqued my interest, as as you would probably think. Arizona will be in Chicago to go against the Cubs. Those mm -hmm. two teams are top teams in their division as well, just like uh, Los Angeles and Philadelphia. Washington is playing in Milwaukee, and the Nationals need to get it going. They're 49-49, and 49, and they are back trailing Philadelphia and Atlanta, and the Brewers just trying to stay alive and maintain in the Central. So that's that's pretty much where I'll be watching baseball tonight, going through those three games. Good stuff. I'm right there with you. I'm looking forward to seeing the Brewers tonight, see if they can bounce back. Of course, the Cubs going to be up there, and I'll be doing some baseball of my own, preparing for the state baseball tournament, Jimmy B. Yes. And uh, our first game of play-by-play -play coverage will begin tomorrow at 5 o'clock as we'll bring you the Wildcats from Carlisle against Waverly Shell Rock right at 5 o'clock for that one. And then, of course, on Wednesday, a triple header of coverage. It starts at 11 a.m. with West Des Moines Valley against Waukee. Then at 1.30, Johnston, the number one seed against Cedar Rapids, Washington. And the nightcap, Urbandale and Marshalltown. We'll have the call for all those games coming your way here on 1700. Jimmy B., have a good night. Thank you, buddy. You do the same, and we'll be back at it bright and early tomorrow afternoon at 4 o'clock right here on the Big Talker 1700.